If you have your Bible with me, or with you, uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. First book in the New Testament, chapter 11. This morning we're going to be looking together at verses 25 through 30. So join me and let's pray. Father, you are a God who is abounding in steadfast love and mercy, who is gracious, whose strength is made perfect in weakness. And so, Lord, we are before you this morning as a weak people, a needy people, and we pray that you would make your presence known to us and you would refresh us in your presence, that you would grant us your good peace and rest. May your truth permeate our hearts and shape our minds and bless us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 11, verses 25 through 30 say this. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Father except or no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and the one to whom and the one to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Salvation in the Bible is the coming to an experiential or a revelational knowledge of who Jesus Christ is and what he has accomplished. And the book of Matthew is an unfolding of that revelation. It's written primarily to a Jewish audience to demonstrate to the audience that Jesus of Nazareth truly is the Messiah, the long-awaited one, that he is indeed Emmanuel, God with us, who has come to save his people from their sin. And for centuries and centuries, God had been preparing the way for the coming of this Messiah. Through prophecies and through promises, God had spoken of a day when he himself would come to deliver his people. Isaiah 7.14 is an example of that. Written 700 years before the birth of Jesus, it says this, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call his name Emmanuel. And then, in the opening chapter of the book of Matthew, we read this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And then a few verses later, it says, And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. In Jesus of Nazareth, the day of God's visitation to earth had finally come. And throughout the book of Matthew, the author goes to great lengths to connect the life and ministry of Jesus to the Old Testament prophecies and foreshadows of the great deliverer of God's people and unfolding God's plan of salvation as King Jesus is revealed with greater and greater clarity through his words and through his actions. And in our passage today, there are three great truths regarding this salvation that are revealed. First, that this salvation is by grace. Secondly, that this salvation is in Christ. And third, that this salvation is rest for your soul. How it works, where it's found, and what it is. And when we speak of the salvation here, we have in mind both God's saving work in bringing the spiritually dead to life by regeneration, and God's ongoing work of deliverance and salvation in the life of a Christian. And so first, salvation is by grace. Verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Our section begins with the words, at that time. For the past three chapters, Matthew has been recording the traveling ministry of Jesus as he went about from town to town preaching the good news of his coming and performing miracles to attest to the fact that he is indeed the one sent of God with all authority to forgive sin. And there were many who were astonished at his teaching and they were convinced by his miracles and they came to trust and follow him. But there were also those who remained hard-hearted and rejected his message, even accusing him of blaspheming for ascribing such things to himself. And so it is as Jesus looks back, an assessment over this journey that involved both joyful reception and scornful rejection, that he bursts into spontaneous prayer in front of the crowd that now surrounds him. He turns his heart to his Father in heaven, and he prays a prayer of gratitude out loud in front of the people. And in so doing, he teaches those listening and teaches us listening something about the character and ways of God. The one to whom Jesus is praying is Lord of heaven and earth. Literally, master or owner of heaven and earth. He is the one whose desires shape history, whose commands are binding, and whose will is supreme. And here, in this prayer, we learn something glorious about his will. That it is his will to save people, not based on their achievement or their merit, but based solely on his grace. Listen to the prayer. I thank you, 
Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Now, at first glance, this prayer might seem to contradict the teaching of Scripture. Doesn't Scripture promote and tell us to pursue wisdom and understanding? It does. Let me read for you from Proverbs 2, where it says, Make your ear attentive to wisdom and incline your heart to understanding. Yes, call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding. Seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures. And yet here, Jesus says that God hides the truth of his kingdom from the wise and the understanding. Why would he say that? I think to better understand the way he's using these words, it may help to put air quotes around those words. You have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding. Or to put it another way, you have hidden these things from the so-called wise and understanding. Jesus is here speaking of a carnal wisdom and understanding that leads to pride and self-reliance, and it denies the need of a savior. This is the one who is depending on his or her own goodness and achievement to earn them favor with God. From these people, God hides the truth of his kingdom and the identity of the one that he has sent to save the world. And in contrast with them, Jesus rejoices that God has revealed his identity and his salvation to little children. And in this context, Jesus isn't here teaching that salvation or redemption is only available to those who are eight and under. Instead, he's contrasting the characteristics of those who would come to him with the pride of the wise and the understanding people that don't think they need him. And so he uses the imagery of children to convey that contrast. Children, unlike the accomplished and the successful, know that they have nothing to offer God. No great heights of wisdom, no great depths of understanding. Children must be fed and taught. They must be clothed and cared for. In a word, children are needy. And Jesus is here rejoicing that the Father reveals his saving truths of the kingdom to the needy, to those who come empty-handed to Jesus, whose ears and hearts are open to receive his truth. This revealing of Christ by the Father to the humble and the childlike caused Jesus to rejoice with thankfulness as it demonstrated something that Jesus has always known about his Father, that he is gracious. To be gracious is to give freely to the undeserving. And Jesus says in verse 26 that it is God's delight to do so. He says, Yes, Father, for such is your gracious will. Or as it can also be translated, for so it well pleased you. It is God's pleasure to reveal himself to the needy, to the one who has nothing to offer him, to the childlike, to the humble, who know that they are dependent upon him. I wonder if that's you this morning. Do you know yourself to be in need of God's help? 
Have you become convinced that you have no claim upon him and that you lack the holiness and the wisdom and the understanding that would commend you to him? Then this passage is great news for you. Because not only does that not disqualify you from his salvation, but in fact, you are the only type of person that he saves. Boast in your weakness. Reflect on your poverty of spirit. Confront your lack of righteousness because it's on the other side of these things that you will find the grace of God ready to meet you right where you are. His salvation is by grace. He comes to you when you know yourself to be bankrupt and needy, dependent upon him as a child is dependent on their father. And in his kindness, he reveals himself to you and meets your every need. And this he does by drawing to you in his son, Jesus Christ. That's our second observation in this passage. Salvation is in Christ. It is by grace, and it is in Christ. Read with me from verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. After having expressed his gratitude to the Father for being so gracious to the needy and dependent people and saving those who have nothing to offer him, Jesus then addresses the people in front of him. His teaching of who God is and how we are to relate to him was so different than anything that the people had been taught. And so Jesus now speaks of his unique relationship to the Father and his unique ability to speak on behalf of and to make him known to mankind. When Jesus spoke, it was completely different than the religious leaders of his day. The authority of their teaching was outside of them, in the words of Scripture. It was their duty to study and to convey God's truth. But when Jesus spoke, he spoke as one who himself had the authority of God and who knew him personally. And so we read at the end of Matthew 7, after Jesus' authoritative teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, It says this, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Standing before them, offering such grace to the needy, was not just a new leader on the scene with a new spin on religious truths apart from the mainstream leaders of the day. No, standing before them, was God in the flesh. Jesus had been vested by the Father with all authority and knowledge to both reveal and complete God's redemptive plan. His words can be trusted. His promises can be banked upon since he himself speaks with full authority on behalf of God. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And what we see next is incredible. Jesus speaks of the unique relationship between him and his Father. He says, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. 
There is a knowledge that the Father and Son have of each other that is personal and intimate and pure and exhaustive. You can know someone and then you can know someone. You can know things about a person through the narratives of Scripture and through the teachings of Scripture. One can come to a certain degree of knowledge of God. But Jesus Christ knows his Father personally and experientially. In fact, he came to earth from the very presence of his Father. There is a relationship and knowledge and life between the Father and the Son that that spills over into the world in Jesus Christ. And in Jesus, God makes that knowledge and life available to us. So just as the Father gives salvation by grace, He gives it in Christ. Jesus, we can say, is, is the arm of God by which He reaches into the world and takes hold of a human heart and captivates it with His glory. The Son carries the intimate knowledge of, all, of the all-satisfying Father and conveys it to the world in his life and in his words. This is what Jesus means when he says that he reveals the Father. He carries in him the character and the beauty and the attractiveness of his Father and thereby shows you what your soul was made for. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father, Jesus said in John 14. God has drawn near to us in his Son so that we might know him intimately and share in his life. This is what salvation is. The life of God taking up residence in the soul of a person. And yet this life, Jesus says, must be revealed by him. No one knows the Son except for the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. It is not enough to merely read of Him and to know about Him. He must reveal Himself to the soul. This is the great miracle that the Bible calls being born again by God's Spirit. As Jesus taught and performed miracles, there was an audible teaching and a visible miracle taking place, but simultaneously there was a hidden and invisible work taking place by His Spirit in the hearts of those who came to follow Him. They were seeing the glory of God in the man, Jesus Christ, that stood before them. John, in the first chapter of his book, puts it this way, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus has been vested with a unique authority and has a unique knowledge of God the Father that he reveals. And in revealing him, he gives life, true life. So what is this life? And what effect does it have on a soul that experiences it? That's our third and last observation from this passage. Salvation is rest for your soul. Jesus has shown us that 
God grants salvation to the needy and to the humble, and that he is the true and full revelation of the character and heart of God in whom salvation is found. And now he invites the people and invites you and I to this salvation that is in him. Read with me from verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Having all authority and all knowledge to act on behalf of God his Father, look at how Jesus speaks to the people. There are those in front of him that are weary and burdened, that are overwhelmed and in over their head. He doesn't say to them, get your act together, work harder, smarten up. He doesn't rebuke them for their frailty or mock them for being too weak. No, he simply says, come. Come to me. Bring your weariness. Bring your burden and come to me. And in exchange for it, I will give you rest. And look how, how indiscriminate this invitation is. All who labor and all who are heavy laden, come. As you sit there this morning, does that describe you? Are you weary? Are you burdened beyond what you can bear? Jesus invites you and I to himself today. He invites all people with all types of burdens. This has been a year unlike any in our lifetime. We have felt the loneliness of isolation, the disconnect of Zoom church services, the lack of in-person fellowship and encouragement, the lack of true connection with people that our masks cause us to feel, the loss of employment while bills pile up and creditors keep calling, relational strains as we attempt the impossible task of juggling being a disciple and a parent, a school teacher, a husband, a wife, an employee, a caretaker, a provider, and a comforter. We have felt the grief of not being able to be with loved ones, the experiences of doubt and despair, the feeling of being like a caged animal about to go crazy during lockdown, the temptations to find some temporary escape from sorrow by indulging in sin. If you're anything like me, brothers and sisters, then you have felt all of these and more. You have cried more secret tears than anyone knows. You've had days or maybe even weeks when getting out of bed to face another day like this seemed like too much to bear. You feel weary 
and burden beyond your ability. So hear the words of Jesus this morning. Come to me. There is no other place to go. There is no other source of true rest. But what does he mean by rest? Come to me and I will give you rest. This is not a new concept in the scriptures. This is not the first time his hearers would have been hearing about this idea of rest. This theme of rest is one that is weaved throughout the entire Bible. From the very first chapter where God ceases from his labor on the seventh day of creation and rests, and then institutes a weekly day of rest for his people on which they cease from their work to be refreshed, to the rest that is promised to the Israelites as God delivers them from slavery in Egypt to a land flowing with milk and honey where they can enjoy all of his good provisions, to the rest that they have from all their enemies when they finally come to occupy that good land. All of these instances in the Old Testament reveal something about the rest that Jesus is here inviting people to. They're, we can say, like parables or foreshadows of what God would ultimately provide and is now providing in Jesus. And like parables, they were visible and tangible depictions of a spiritual reality. Cessation from labor. Deliverance from bondage, feasting on the good provision of God, victory over your enemies. Jesus is here offering these things, not merely on a surface level addressing only the needs of the body, but at a spiritual level, bringing refreshment and rest to the very souls of people. He says in verse 29, you will find rest for your souls. And oh, how we, I, you, need this rest. The rest that God provides does not come by him causing all the things that have been burdening us to disappear tomorrow. It is much more powerful than that. He gives an inward rest for our souls that refreshes us, that strengthens us, that gives us all that we need to experience the fullness of his life, even in the midst of our difficulties. He allows us to experience his life-giving power that we might face each day with a renewed strength that is not our own and accomplish and do what we could not do apart from him. So how, then, do we enter into this rest? Jesus says two things. Take his yoke upon you, and learn from him. A yoke in ancient times was a farming instrument. A farmer would strap it onto the shoulders of an ox and it had a plowing tool on the tail end of it. And so the ox would walk through the field pulling this plowing device to prepare the ground for the farming season. And this, you can imagine, is labor-intensive work for the ox. In fact, when, when the ground was dry, uh, or, or tough. It could even cause the ox to stumble and buckle under its resistance. And this was the spiritual experience of the people to whom Jesus was calling out. We read about the spiritual leaders of Jesus' day, where Jesus says, in rebuke of them, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, 
and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with, a, with their finger. These leaders had imposed upon the people unbearable standards, which they taught people could, which by they taught people could please God. And in contrast to these teachers, Jesus says that his yoke is easy. Now, he does not load his people with heavy demands until they buckle under the weight. He gives to us not one ounce more than we in his strength and in his rest can carry. Not only has he given us a better yoke to labor under, but he has also given us himself as our example of what it looks like to journey in this fallen world filled with its trials and temptations, filled with its weariness and heaviness with the rest that God supplies. He knows, brother, he knows, sister, what you are facing today as he himself has gone before you down this path and experienced it too. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, says the author of Hebrews. And so, in the record of Jesus found in the scriptures, we find not only a Savior who gives rest to the weary, but also the example of a son who lives under the burdens of life. This is why he says here, I am gentle and lowly of heart. He knows your weakness. He has felt your pain. And so he walks with you with compassion and with patience. Are you lonely? Look to Jesus, who in John 16 says about his closest friends, The hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Have you been crying out to God in the midst of tears? Read of Jesus in Hebrews 5, who, 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 of whom it said, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him. Do you have deep sorrow that seems inescapable? See Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as he is about to face his death, saying, My soul is sorrowful even unto death. And yet even when God did not grant him his request to remove this cup, says, Yet not what I will, but what you will. Have you been wrestling with temptation? Look to Jesus in Matthew 4 and see how he was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil and yet overcame temptation by the truth of God's word and experienced the strengthening ministry of God's angels. Have you been ridiculed and mocked 
or enticed to throw away your confidence in God? See how Jesus is described in 1 Peter 2, where it says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We have, in the life of Jesus, not only the source of our rest, but the source of our example. Daily, we must bring our struggles to the pages of Scripture and learn from Jesus to remain steadfast in the midst of them. And what was it that was at the foundation of Jesus' resolve to press forward and persevere in the will of his Father, even through trials, even through rejection and persecution and sorrow and temptation and loneliness, and ultimately even through the cross where he would bear the crushing weight of the sin of the world. Hebrews 12 tells us that it was for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Every step along the way, Jesus had one eye fixed on the finish line. After the temptations, and after the persecution, and after the sorrow and loneliness, and after the rejection, and after the cross, was a reunion with his Father in everlasting joy. That is the ultimate and final rest that awaited him and awaits us who hold fast to him, the Savior, until the end. That's when we will know the words of Revelation, Revelation 21 experientially. It says this, Then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And in light of the great end to which we are being led, which will be all the sweeter as a result of the toil we will be delivered from, we can with confidence say with Paul that this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look to the things not that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. God freely gives his grace to the undeserving and to the needy. And he reveals himself to the soul through Jesus Christ, the Savior. And in this revealing, he brings deep soul rest that enables us to face the burdens of this life with joy until at last we experience the full and unending rest of God in his presence. So today, if you feel your need of him and you hear his voice calling, don't delay. Come to him. Let's pray.
Lord, draw us unto yourself. Convince us that you alone are rest for our souls. Call us away from the empty cisterns that we might dig and seek to find refreshment elsewhere. Captivate our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.